And everybody's scurrying to their seats. Now that is not airbrush. <laughs> that is defamation of character. <laughs> yeah, you know what? For those of you that are home folk, uh, you have seen that picture before. Um, because that was, uh, I, I kept that picture around because that was the month that I got saved. And... Uh, Wow. <laughs> a constant reminder to me every time I look at that countenance that I was lost and in sin, man. And God graciously brought me out. Okay, well, thanks for messing me up. <laughs> but that is, that is pretty funny, I must say. I hope that isn't the most enjoyable part of our night together. Uh, thanks for coming out again, man. What, what, a, what an awesome church, man. Uh, I love this, this place. And I, 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 I say this every year, not because I plan to say it. I am so absolutely thrilled that God brought Jeff Bartell to First Baptist Church of New Philadelphia. Amen. Yes, when you guys voted him in, if, if you felt that, that rush of wind come by, that was me, my sigh of relief from Columbus, Ohio. <laughs> it made it all the way here, I'm telling you. Praise God for that. Okay, we, we've been talking for the last several nights. Uh, my, my introduction has been why I'm not a Calvinist and why I'll no longer tiptoe through the tulips. Uh, number one, I, I talked about the fact I'm not a Calvinist because the simple fact of the Bible is that man's connection with God has always been determined by his, meaning man's, own choice. Number two, I, we talked about the fact I'm not a Calvinist because my final authority has not been determined by a theological system, but rather the theology that I embrace has been determined by my final authority. I go to this. Number three, I'm not a Calvinist because I've learned what they actually mean by the terms they use. And if you haven't been able to attend the morning sessions, I would suggest that you get the CDs for that and, uh, and actually find out a little more about what they mean by the terms that they use. Uh, last night, we talked about the fact I'm not a Calvinist because I, I believe God could sue Reformed theology for defamation of character when you really begin to hear what they're saying. And then tonight, just as we, we get started and by way of introduction, I want to add a fifth one. And that is, I'm not a Calvinist because I always want to be able to be honest with lost people about what I really believe. And, and the reason that I say that, I don't know if that you know, has struck brain yet, but, but I can tell you this, that if I, was a, if I was a Calvinist, I wouldn't be able to do that. 
I, I wouldn't be able to stand before a lost crowd like this and tell you what I really believe. You know, I, I, I can't say that I, I listen to a lot of Calvinists, uh, you know, before Mark Driscoll kind of spun out there, uh, because he had the ear of so many young people. I, I just, I wanted to find out what in the world is this guy about, you know? So I, I read this book that had absolutely nothing to do with Calvinism, and yet every chapter, <laughs> I just got blasted with Calvinism, man. L- listen, the same thing happens if you read a John Piper book. You can't get through a chapter, <laughs> without somehow Calvinism being dumped on you. Same thing with R.C. Sproul. Um, And I just got to tell you, man, anything that has to keep coming up every time somebody preaches, that's whack to me. You know, the the charismatics, you, you can't hear a message without tongues somehow coming in there, you know? With the Calvinists, you can't hear a message without somewhere the sovereignty of God coming into that. Uh, maybe a lot of the people in, in, in this room, you can't preach a message without talking about what version of the Bible you use. <laughs> There's something whack about something that has to just keep coming up. Okay, so enough of that. I, I've not heard every Calvinist preach to lost people. But I, I will tell you this, in all of my, whatever it's been now, 42 years since I've been, say, 43, I have never heard a single Calvinist come into, in an evangelistic setting, in, in, full of a, a lost room like this. I can tell you in, in Malawi, Africa, we, we did an evangelistic crusade, Whew. The entire place is filled with lost people, okay? I've never seen one of them come into an environment like that and tell the people what they really believed about the group of people that they were looking at in that very room. Now, now, listen, y'all. They've got to keep that under wraps, because I believe if they actually told the people in that room what they believed, they'd suddenly find that for some strange reason there aren't any of the elect that are coming to their services anymore. Because I don't think that a lost person anywhere on this planet would want to be connected with the God of Calvinism. And let me explain to you what, I, what I'm talking about. The, the message that we who have been called of God to preach the word of God, and yet I think this is a church that understands, we've all been commanded to preach the gospel and take it to every single person. That is our mission. This, this church understands that fully. Okay, and the message that we have to give to lost people, y'all, it's offensive. Galatians 5.11 even says that. There is an offense to the cross. The preaching of the cross, the preaching of the gospel is offensive. But listen, we are all willing to risk that, right? 
for, for the hope of their salvation. And as John 16, 8 says, if the Spirit of God is going to do His work of reproving lost people of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, then we're going to have to be very clear, we're going to have to be very honest, we're going to have to be very forthright with them about their condition before a holy God. And again, if we tell them their condition... It's offensive because what we've got to tell them, like we talked about on Sunday night, we've got to tell them that they are a righteous less, clueless, seeking less, Christ less, covenant less, promise less, hope less, godless, and helpless. But other than that, you're all right. We've got to tell them that, and, and we've got to tell them that unless you will believe the gospel by calling upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the only name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved, if you will not believe the gospel, if you will not receive the gospel, you'll spend eternity in the Christless, godless lake of fire. And I get it, man. That's offensive. That's hard. That, that's not pulling any punches. But, but listen, as hard as it sounds, and as offensive as it might be, there, there isn't a preacher in this room that has any problem whatsoever, at anywhere, anytime, telling any person and every person exactly what you believe. You could tell them everything that I've said to this point. And the reason that we would be willing to do that is because to really ever get to the good news and appreciate the good news, you've got to know the bad news. And we know that after giving the people the bad news, that we've got some good news to be able to share with them the absolute best news for a helpless, hopeless, godless sinner. And Paul identified that for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4, that Jesus Christ died, was buried, and rose again. And what he did by doing that will provide you the forgiveness of sin, Life in your dead spirit, light in your darkness, the middle wall of partition that separates you from God will be removed, and you can be reconciled to God, man. And listen, we will unashamedly and gladly preach that message and extend that invitation for people to obey the gospel of Christ because that's what the Bible says, man, and we believe it, and we're not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, we're not ashamed of it because we know that if we'll have the opportunity to be able to bust that message out, man, people will respond to it because a holy God exercises his power through what Christ did and the message of what Christ did. I'll tell anybody what I believe. But listen now. A Calvinist could never really share 
with a room full of lost people like this what they really believe. Because if they did that, you know what they'd have to say? Now we're glad that you're here tonight. They've already preached the message. And now we're going to give you the opportunity to obey the gospel and call upon the only name given among men whereby we must be saved. But now listen, before we actually extend that invitation to you, okay, you understand the bad news and now you understand the good news of the gospel. Well, okay, there's another layer of some good news and bad news that we need to share with you. And I'm going to start with the good news, okay? The good news is this, that there are some of you in this room, and before you were ever born, in fact, even before the foundation of the world, God chose some of you people in this room to be saved. And listen, if he did that, you will be able to believe and receive Christ today. And folks, I want you to know that the God of the Bible in choosing you to salvation, he took great pleasure in that. But now let me give you the bad news. The other reality is that there are some of you in this room that God didn't choose to salvation. Rather, Before the foundation of the world, and certainly before you were ever born, you were chosen for reprobation. And if you're unfamiliar with that term, in other words, before you were ever born and before the foundation of the world, you were chosen for damnation. And I also want you to know that in choosing you for damnation... God takes just as much pleasure in your damnation than he does the other people's salvation. I dare a Calvinist to go tell a group of lost people that. Am I whacked? If you believe that, there's nothing in this book, y'all, that I'm not willing to share with a lost person. But somehow, you ain't going to tell them that God chose them for damnation and he takes pleasure in that. And and again, if, if I were you and I didn't know a whole lot about what Calvinism really teaches, I probably would be thinking right now, come on, Pastor Mark you got to be slanting that to your own bias. I mean, surely they don't believe that. Okay? Gene Krakenfell says, God has unconditionally elected some men to eternal salvation and others to eternal damnation. His election is unconditional, meaning man has absolutely no say in his salvation. John Calvin wrote this, those therefore whom God passes by, he didn't choose for salvation, he reprobates, and that for no other cause but because he is, can you fathom this? 
pleased to exclude them. To exclude them from the inheritance which he predestines to his children. And in this same section, Calvin writes, But if all whom the Lord predestinates, predestines to death are naturally, naturally liable to sentence of death, of what injustice, pray, do they complain? Because by his eternal providence, they were before their birth doomed to perpetual destruction. What will they be able to mutter against this defense? Wow. Calvin goes on, of this, no other cause can be adduced than reprobation, which is hidden in the secret counsels of God. He does it because he jolly well wants to. Still quoting Calvin, Now since the arrangement of all things is in the hand of God, he arranges that individuals are born who are doomed from the womb to certain death, listen to this, and are to glorify him by their destruction. Does this get on your radar like it gets on mine? Calvin goes on, God, according to the good pleasure of his will, without any regard to merit, elects those whom he chooses for sons while he rejects and reprobates others. It is right for him to show by punishing that he is a just judge. Here, the words of Augustine most admirably apply. When other vessels are made unto dishonor, it must be imputed not to injustice, but to judgment. And if you doubt about what Calvin actually meant by the doctrine of reprobation, listen to this. We say then that Scripture clearly proves this much. And as we continue on, I'd like to know where. That God, by his eternal and immutable counsel, determined once for all those whom it was his pleasure one day to admit to salvation, and those whom, on the other hand, it was his pleasure to doom to destruction. Something about... God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked? Mm -mm. We maintain that his counsels as regards the elect is founded on his free mercy without any respect to human worth, while those whom he dooms to destruction are excluded from access to life by a just and blameless, incomprehensible judgment. That's John Calvin. That's Calvinism. R.C. Sproul, who is the modern-day guru, if you will, of Calvinism, writes, if some people are not elected unto salvation, then it would seem that God is not at all loving toward them. Further, it seems that it would have been more loving of God not to have allowed them to be born. That may indeed be the case. 
Are you actually saying that? Sproul goes on to say, the sinner in hell must be asking, God, if you really loved me, why didn't you coerce me to believe? I would rather have had my free will violated than to be here in this eternal place of torment. I feel like we could have written that. That's our argument. Hey, if you're going to fight with us, get on your own side. And Sproul continues, if we grant that God can save men by violating their wills, which is what we'll talk about in the, uh, tomorrow morning, irresistible grace, that God can save men by violating their wills, why then does he not violate everybody's will and bring them all to salvation? That's a great question. The only answer I can give to this question is that I don't know. I have no idea why. God saves some, but not all. I don't doubt for a moment that God has the power to save all. Then all I can say is you've got a jacked up belief system. If you've got a swimming pool in your backyard and there are three people that are drowning in the shallow end... And you can save all three, but you don't because, well, Dad, burn it. It's your pool. And you can, you can save who you want. And so if you save one and two drown, well, it's your pool. Listen, there isn't a person here or a person that I have ever met. I don't, I don't know that. Serial killers <laughs> could watch drowning people. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's, that's not even human, much less humane. <laughs> and, and, and so I, I ask you tonight, you mean to tell me that a depraved, fallen, sinful, selfish human, that we can be more benevolent than our Utterly holy and loving God? Does that make sense to you? For the life of me, y'all, I cannot get my head wrapped around how otherwise intelligent human beings can get their heart and head wrapped around that. And I think that understanding what they really believe about that serves as a great segue into the passage we'll be talking about tonight. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. Ephesians chapter 1, and you can turn in your Bibles there if you would. Now, before we actually get into that, let's, because of some of the ground that we covered last night and the similarity of some of the terms, I think it might be good for us to just talk for just a second about what we talked about last night from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. Do you have that? Okay, what, what we saw last night was that God chose us to salvation. 
That, that's what 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 to 14 say. But what we saw is that if we will actually stick with the text and keep the text in its context, what we saw is that this choosing wasn't something that God just arbitrarily did from the beginning, as in the, from the foundation of the world. The choosing that he was talking about in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13 isn't left to our own private interpretation. Because the, the verse says that he did his choosing through something. Verse 13 says that it was through two key things. Do you remember that? Number one, it was through something that God did. And what verse 13 says he did is that he sanctified us. In other words, there was a point in time for all of us who are saved when God set us apart by his Spirit so that we might be able to hear the proclamation of God's truth. And this would be the whole John 1, 9 thing. God shining the light upon us like that verse says that he does with every man. This would be the whole John 6, 44 thing. The Father drawing people to Christ through the gospel. This would be the fulfillment in our lives of Titus chapter 2 and verse 11. That point in time when the grace of God that brings salvation appeared to us. Because up until that time, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4, it says that Satan was using our sin to blind our minds to the gospel. But buddy, listen, the light of the glorious gospel of Christ shined past those blinders that, that he was using. And for the first time, we were beginning to understand the bad news of our utterly sinful condition before a holy God. And for the first time, we were beginning to understand the good news of what God did in and through the Lord Jesus Christ to redeem us and to restore us to the Father. And that's the beginning that Paul was talking about in verse 13 of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And Paul says that God chose us to salvation through that beginning, through God by His Spirit setting us apart for the proclamation of the gospel. And so first of all, verse 13 of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 says that God was choosing us to salvation through what He did by His Spirit. Paul goes on to say in verse 13 that God's choosing was through something else. It was through something that we did. And what did we do, y'all? Do you remember verse 13 says that we simply believed the truth. We, we, we were chosen through our belief of the truth. And you, listen, you're going to need to be very careful here because a Calvinist is going to say, you see, that's the problem with you people. You see, you think that your salvation 
is something that you do. And what they accuse us of is actually believing in works for salvation. And we say, no, it's not of works. We are saved by grace through faith. And you know what they say? You believe in works. Because faith is a work. And I would beg to differ with that because the Bible very simply and clearly says that it isn't. That's the point Paul's driving at in Romans chapter 3, verses 24 through 28. Follow with me. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which was chosen before the foundation of the world, which believeth in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works. Nay, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man, listen very carefully, is justified by faith without the deeds, works of the law. It could not be any clearer, y'all. It's by faith, not of works. So obviously then, Faith isn't a what? You would have to have a seminary degree to miss that. And so Paul says, back in 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 and 14, let me get arranged here. Okay, I'm almost better. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 13 and 14, that God chose us to salvation or chose to save us when by faith we expressed belief in the truth. Okay, now, if you haven't figured out, this is all the setup for where we're going tonight, okay? And you'll remember in this passage that the, the contrast Everything that he's talking about here is in contrast to others that he just described in verses 10 through 12. Listen, people who had the same exact sanctifying of the Spirit, verse 10 says, that they had the same opportunity that the Thessalonians had to receive the love of the truth that they might be saved, but they very consciously, verse 12 even says, very willfully, they chose, not that God chose, they chose not to believe the truth. And again I say, if you just let the Bible be the Bible and you don't let anybody's Reformed theology become the filter or the lens that you read it through, there's not one ounce 
of Reformed theology in those verses whatsoever. And I bring up these Second Thessalonian verses again tonight to emphasize the simplicity that is in Christ when we just keep the specific text in its context. If we'll just let the Bible be the Bible. But I know that as soon as I say that, that somebody's going to say, but Pastor Mark, if you're going to do that with the passage we're dealing with tonight, you're going you're to be in trouble. Because you're not going to be able to read that 2 Thessalonians 2 passage into Ephesians 1, because Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 6 says that God was choosing something, Pastor Mark. Not from the beginning of his grace appearing to us. Verse 4 clearly says that his, this choosing God was doing here is something he did from the real beginning, from the foundation of the world. And this passage doesn't say that God's choice was based on anything that we did. Verse 5 says that God did this choosing according to the good pleasure of his will. And once again, because of conditioning, because of the influence of, of that Reformed theological filter, we, we come to a passage like this and we want to freak out just a little bit. Our, the blood comes up in our cheeks because, after all, my goodness, that is exactly what the passage says. Is it? Is that what it says? Well, keep in mind our little 3D box. Okay? Let's, let's just take a simple, common man look at Ephesians chapter 1, and, and let's see if how we've been conditioned to read this doesn't flip. Okay, you ready? Okay, I'll, I'll talk with you. Are, are you ready? Okay, cool. Now, once again, work with me, okay? This is simple, though. Really simple. You're going to want your money back, okay? I don't know what it cost you to get in here, but you're going to want your money back after tonight. Okay. Acts chapter 2 tells us that on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 souls were saved and added to the, what? Added to the church. And yet the truth is, y'all, if you would have walked up to those 3,000 people on that day and said, hey, isn't it great to be a part of the body of Christ? They would have looked at you like you were absolutely nuts. They would not have had a clue what you were talking about. And what's even more than that is that if you would have walked up to Peter on that day, 
the, the one who was actually preaching the sermon that they responded to, or if you would have gone to any of the apostles who were there and said, wow, fellas, ain't that awesome? How cool is that, man? 3,000 souls were added to the body of Christ. And they would have said, say what? What you talking about, Willis? <laughs> the body of Christ? And if you would have said, oh, you, you, you know, the whole Jew and Gentile together in one body thing? Listen, again, they would not have a clue about what you were talking about. And do you understand this? That nobody would have had a clue about that for another 30 years? Because the book of Ephesians wasn't written for another 30 years after that. Nobody on this planet had a clue that in, uh, about the church being the body of Christ until that was revealed by the Spirit of God to Paul, and then the Spirit of God inspired Paul to write the book of Ephesians. And listen, that is the key purpose that the book of Ephesians is in the Bible. Do you understand that? Oh, awesome, Jeff. I'll talk to you now. <laughs> okay, do you, do you understand that logic? Nobody comprehended the body of Christ until the body of Christ's vision was revealed through the Apostle Paul, and that came in the book of Ephesians. That's why that book is there, okay? It's to teach us, and, and this is very important, he that hath ears to hear, let him hear what the trot dog is about to say. That when we received Christ, collectively, we became members of his body, which is the church. How many of you think, I am the body of Christ? How many of you think you are the body of Christ? No, none of us think that. We're all just members of the body of Christ. And Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23 says that God the Father hath put all things under his feet, that is Christ, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, here it comes, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Okay. It's very important to note that context in Ephesians chapter 1 that the church, listen, collectively is what comprises the body of Christ. And if you miss that context, I submit to you, you will make some unbelievably grave errors in interpreting this passage Okay, now with that teaching, the purpose of the book of Ephesians 
as is clearly delineated in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, with that in mind that the church collectively comprises the body of Christ, and again, that being the purpose that the book of Ephesians is in our Bible. Now let's look back at verse 3 of this, this same chapter. Verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed... What's the next word, y'all? Okay. And note that in the context of Ephesians chapter 1, the us isn't all of us individuals who have received salvation, though we most certainly are individually blessed beyond measure with all spiritual blessings. But... In the context, in the purpose of the book of Ephesians, the us is the collective us. It's all of us who collectively comprise the church of Jesus Christ, which is his what? His body. And he hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places, where? In Christ. According, verse 4, as He hath chosen us, the church, the collective body of Christ, He chose us in Him, before the foundation of the world, that we, the church, the collective body of Christ, of whom we are all members, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. And again, you can't separate the us and the we in verse 3 from the context of chapter 1 or the context of the entire book, for that matter. The us and the we here isn't all of us individuals. He isn't saying, we have to read into it to get there, he isn't saying that before the foundation of the world, God looked at all of the people who would exist in the history of the world and he just started randomly choosing out individuals according to his sovereign will that he would choose for salvation. No. It's the collective us that he identifies in the context. It's the us that collectively comprises the church, the body of Christ. What what these verses are saying is that God made a determination before the foundation of the world. And he did so just exactly like verse 5 says that he did. He did it according to the good pleasure of his will. And what he predetermined, or as verse 5 says, what he predestinated is that there would be, listen real carefully, that there would be a group of people, as verse 10 says, that are in one dispensation or, or in one 
particular period of time. And, and the people in that dispensation that we call the church age, that group of people would be different. That group of people would be distinct. That group of people would be unique from every other group of people who would ever live in any other dispensation or period of time because those people who knew those people would collectively comprise Christ's body. And those people would be the church. Listen, y'all, that was his choice. And in his choosing, what verse 4 says that he chose is something that would make us different from any group of people in any other time period. And that is that we, the, the church, would be in Him. That spiritually, the Father would place those of us living now He'd place us in His Son. Isn't that what verse 4 says? Look, look at it again. According as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world. And you see, listen, y'all, there have been a lot of great men in the Bible. A, 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 a lot greater men, if, if I dare say so, a, a lot better men than you and I will ever be. But there's one distinct difference between them and, what's the word? us and that is that we're part of the us that God's talking about in verse 4 who are those who are in Christ and man you talk about God blessing us with all spiritual blessings man that's where they're at you talk about being distinct from every group of people in the history of the world. That's us. Listen. Abraham, you know what the Bible calls him? Anybody? The friend of God. But you know something about old Abe? He was never in Christ a day in his life. Noah, you talk about a great guy. A, a guy with faith perhaps like nobody else who's ever lived. And you realize Noah 
was never in Christ a day in his life. Moses, the meekest man on earth, a man that the Scripture says talked with God the way that a man talks to his friend. Never in Christ a day in his life. Job, God said to Satan, have you checked this dude out that there ain't nobody like him? Wow, that's some big props. Never in Christ a day in his life. Daniel, they hired people to follow him around to find some dirt in his life, and they couldn't find it. Never in Christ a day in his life. David, the man after God's own heart. Never in Christ a day in his life. You get the point? Okay, sorry. <laughs> Listen, being placed spiritually in Christ, y'all, was something reserved exclusively for those of us in His church. And we have that standing. We have that position being in Him not because we're better than any of those guys we just mentioned. You know why we're there? Because that was simply the way that God determined or predestined that it would be. And, and you know what it means? That He chose us, the church, to be in Him. And you know why He did that? Look at the rest of verse 4. The Father did that so we could be what? That we could be holy. Any of y'all think you holy? I don't. In Christ, I'm as holy as He is. That's why He put me there. He did it, verse 4 says, so we could be holy and without blame because He is too holy to behold iniquity. And because He's so holy and He wanted us to constantly be before Him in what, y'all? Love. That's the essential nature that we were talking about last night. God is holy and God is love. Listen. He chose that that would be our standing before Him. And our standing is not dependent upon what we do or don't do. It's based on the fact that we are, say it, in Him. And His acceptance of us isn't because the lives that we're living are so acceptable. 
But verse 6, the fact that He hath, what's the next word? Made us accepted in the Beloved. Anybody know who the Beloved is? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Check this out, y'all. He chose to accept us the way He accepts His Son. He sees us the way He, say it, sees His Son. And how does He see His Son? Absolutely holy and without blame. And you know where He is? Always before Him and always before Him in what? In love. You you say, man, how could he possibly see us like that, especially in light of Romans chapter 7 and that that battle and the inconsistency of the lives that we live. Listen, y'all, there's only one way that could happen, and it was to place us in his son. And don't miss this now. Verse 4 says that's exactly what God chose before the foundation of the world. Verse 5, He did it according to the good pleasure of His will. And verse 6, He did it so that we could be to the praise of the glory of His grace. Now listen. If if God wouldn't have chosen us to be unique, if He had chosen that that we might be like everybody else in every other period of time, you know what? That was God's prerogative because, you know, He is God. And it's certainly his prerogative. He's God and he can do anything he jolly well wants to do anytime he jolly well wants to do it. That's just not what the book of Ephesians says that he did. Choose people randomly for heaven and hell, for salvation or damnation. Okay. Now, now here's, here's what I want to do as we take all of that. Put a bow on it tonight. Okay? Having gone through this text, listen, seeking to be ever mindful of the context and and making every attempt to let the Bible be the Bible, okay? I I, want to make an attempt at, at putting a very simple handle on this passage so that we can carry the utter simplicity of this passage with us for the rest of our lives. 
Th- this passage, y'all, if you want a biblical view of salvation and what the incredible thing that God did for the church, the body of Christ, man, this is rich. That passage is unbelievable. It ain't scary, y'all. You know what it is? Simple. (laughs) Unless you got that Reformed theology filter laying over the top of it. Do you remember uh, Wanda Schlafly? I, I saw her somewhere in here. The great English teacher of the world. Uh, I don't know what grade we learned this, this in, Mrs. Shafley, but uh, somewhere early on in elementary, probably fifth grade or so, we learn a little principle of who, what, when, where, why, and how, right? And, and so, you know, as we're writing and such, you know, that's kind of a key thing that we want to, you know, keep in our minds. Have we addressed the who, what, when, where, why, and how? You know what? I'm going to ask you tonight, are you, are you smarter than a fifth grader? <laughs> okay, because what we're going to do right now is just take everything that we just looked at and, and let's just do that, okay? So the first question we're going to ask is what? Okay, what did God do? What he did in this passage, y'all, is he chose. Verse 4 says, according as he hath chosen. Okay? Now we're going to ask who, or in this case, I I think I'm right, Mrs. Schlafly, whom. Okay, whom did God choose? What's the answer to that, y'all? Us. Verse 4, according as he hath chosen us. Who is the us? Verse 22 and 23. All of us that comprise the, say it, church, the body of Christ. Okay, let's ask the passage, where? Where was God choosing to place us? Where, y'all, say it. In Him, or in Christ. Verse 4 says, according as He hath chosen us, in him. You see how deep this is, man? When? When did God choose to grant this glorious position for those of us who would comprise his church? Verse 4 says, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. And the next question is, why? Why did God choose to place those of us who comprise His church, the body, in Christ? The passage says there's three key reasons. That we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. Because I think you get it. If you ain't in Christ, you're going to be annihilated in His presence. You ain't going to be before him. He can't lavish his love upon you. But in him, you can. Next, that we would receive the adoption 
of children. That's why he chose us, chose to place us in Christ. And number three, that we would be to the praise of the glory of his grace wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. And next, how? How did God conceive of this glorious plan? It was according to the good pleasure of His will. I know. You want your money back, right? I I wish I could have given you something deep tonight. But if I tried to make it hard, then I'd be like Satan, corrupting your minds, moving you away from the simplicity that is in Christ. Listen, y'all. There ain't none of this scary. (laughs) It's simple. Now, listen, tomorrow night, Acts chapter 13, verse 48 and as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. Oh, no. We've got another one of those. I love Jacob. I hated Esau. We'll talk about both of those tomorrow night. Pastor Jeff.